the result of being a human being that lives in this broken world is this disunification, this discohesion, a complete shattering of the self. Hello, I am Eden, and welcome to my new podcast. This is Keep the Mess, Messy Conversations with Messy People, where we have conversations about how we relate to our bodies and go down whatever rabbit holes we find. I started this podcast because I'm a bit obsessed with this topic. I struggle with embodiment myself and wanted to learn about how other people live in and out of their bodies, and I figured if I'm interested in these things, chances are that others are interested as well. So welcome, fellow obsessives. In this episode, I speak with my friend Sam. This conversation happened on July 1st, 2022, about three months after the first interview I did for this project. I'm opening with this episode despite there being three recordings before it. One of the reasons for this is because of the ethics I use for this podcast, where I don't release an episode unless I get an unambiguous yes from my conversationalists. The second reason is because I didn't want to begin with a particularly heavy conversation. It was a delight to talk with Sam about the experiences of living in the in-between spaces. Sam and I are both queer and Christian, two identities which people from either community often view as impossible or at least inadvisable. For those who are queer and grew up in the church or surrounded by church culture, there will be parts that may be difficult to hear, but there is also joy and laughter. Content warnings for talk about spiritual abuse, transphobia, and homophobia. And lastly, I want to remind people that just because I have someone on this podcast doesn't mean I agree with them on all matters, or even many. These episodes are not about facts or saying things perfectly, but about people's stories, their experiences, their processing. Connecting and communicating with ourselves and each other is a messy affair, so I ask for a listening ear and some grace. All right, here is my interview with Sam. The first question is, how do you and I know each other? We know each other uh, initially from church, Mm -hmm. um, in that while I was visiting the church like two-ish years ago, you and your partner were there, and I met you very briefly outside underneath one of the tents because it was pretty outside, and thought, Oh, they're nice. And then didn't see you again for a long while. And then life things happened and crazy COVID times happened. Um, But then somewhere along the road, uh, we started spending more time together and talking and hanging out and realized that we had a lot of interests. And it became less a matter of just hanging out with you like, when we happened to be in the same place and turned into actually just opting to hang out because we enjoyed friendship in times, um, which is where we are now, being actual, like, grown-up friends, which is wild. I remember the first time I met you, we were both wearing masks. We were all wearing masks, even while outside, because that was the period of time of COVID that it was. And so I didn't actually realize that I had met you until like, I think a few months ago, I was like, oh, that was that person. That was Sam. (laughs) Should have recognized it. There's not a lot of gingers. (laughs) 
In all fairness, I I had a, a similar thing until I saw your partner wearing the same hat、mm. that he'd been wearing on the day that I met him. That's a very oh no yeah say okay we're good. Of course, all of that was internal. Yeah, I think I would have remembered that. <laughs> Yeah, and you are now a fairly regular part of the Sunday night dinner group,、mm-hmm. and now live near me. Yes, which has made friendship much easier. I just realized that I ha- I still have the play. My name is Asher Lev right there beside you. Yep. It's, yep. It's right there、yep. at the bottom. I need to read that soon because you're le- you're. You're moving, but yeah. But also, you have like a month and a half, two months. It's true. So it's the shortest thing I borrowed from you. Yeah, it's not a long play. It's a good play. Yeah, it's not a long play. Yeah, I'm actually surprised by how not long it is, considering its origin. A lot of that has to do with the fact that the original book, my name is Ashulab Barchan Potok. I just any time I can say a、mm-hmm. name that has the in it, it just makes me happy. Chan Potok. You should have grown up like I did in Russia, and you could have said all the time. No, and、uh, in fairness, when I was growing up early in Kuwait, there were so many different languages that used that sound, but I didn't use them because I was a four-year-old American white boy、um, who spoke English. But、uh, the play does a really masterful job. Of understanding its form,、mm. where like the the novel is very very thoughtful. It's very internal to、mm. Asher's emotional experience and his thought processes over the lifetime that it, it, it covers. The play, like so much of just the the percentage of the text within that novel. Gets turned into just an actor doing a good acting job,、mm. and so that removes a huge chunk of verbiage.、Um, and also, they did a, a very modernist sort of impressionist surreal cut down version of it.、Um, it functions a bit more like a dream play from the beginning,、mm. and when you're operating in a place where There's already that high of a suspension of disbelief. You're not quite a slave to as many narrative structure requirements,、mm. um, and so that allows a lot more brevity,、um, at least within a script. Yeah, I, I can see how that would work well、mm-hmm. for that particular book.、Um, actually, I think this. Well, what I'm guessing the answer to this question, although you could have all sorts of answers,、mm-hmm. but.、Uh, How would you introduce yourself? Slash, what would you like people to know about you? So I've thought about this a great deal for the last many years. As someone with social anxiety,、uh, understanding and caring about the way in which I present myself to the world is something which I spend a huge amount of time focused on. This、uh, is why we're friends. <laughs> well, so many reasons.、Uh, And also, 
given my job, uh, personal publicity, if you will, is, mm. is something you have to be very intentional about. Um, I honestly am quite attached to the tagline that I have on my Facebook profile, which is Samuel <laughs> actor, occasional carpenter, and dog petting enthusiast. <laughs> I forgot about the dog petting part. Yeah, I never do. Um, kind of impressed that you could forget, given that I literally 10 minutes ago was showing you a, a brief video of some giant, gorgeous, fluffy dogs. Well, I, I remember that it is what you put in your actor's bio. Ah, yes. Uh, I've forgotten that it was on Facebook as well. Yes. Uh, but that, that, it feels like a, a helpful, mm, it conveys what it needs to convey without being overly vague or overly intimate. Mm. Um, because what it does is it gives the, the general shape of a person. So an artist, fair enough, an actor, all of us have some idea of what an actor is like as a human being. And it typically runs more towards the line of someone who's social, mm. um, typically talkative, emotional, um, physically active, talks with their hands a lot, I say, as I'm gesticulating right now. Um, it, so that has a clear mental image. It's also my primary occupation, so that's a thing. Um, occasional carpenter, uh, which allows it to modify that first image where our mental image of a carpenter tends to be someone in paint and sawdust covered dickies or carhartts wearing steel toe boots framing out a house mm -hmm. or carving some headboard or something mm -hmm. um and it, that mental image tends to be someone who's a bit more no nonsense cut through the bullshit clear and uh calm and stayed someone works with their hands um which is another part of my life. Um, I've also worked enough time as a carpenter that that is a world in which I function well. And a lot of those virtues of clarity, honesty, simplicity, um, I really, really believe in and, and, and try to hold to. And so hopefully in the comparison between those two, between actor and carpenter, it creates a little bit of a, Oh, artsy, fartsy, sure, but also, like, knows what it is to work for a living. And so hopefully the modification mm. of those two arrives at something that's closer to me. Mm. Yeah, I what I'm getting in my head is, you know, the, the artsy, fartsy part, like, head in the clouds a bit, mm. but also feet down on the earth. Yes, yes. Um, and, of course, the third part, dog petting enthusiast, not only communicates that, yes, if you ask, do I want to pet your dog? The answer is almost always going to be yes, because dogs deserve petting um, and love and adoration. Uh, but also by my inclusion of it in, in such a public and in such a, an immediate and forward sort of tagline, it gives a little bit of whimsy, a little bit of childlikeness as opposed to childishness, hopefully, depending mm -hmm. on, on whoever's reading this. Um, and their feelings on dogs. Um, it give, hopefully it modifies 
actor and carpenter into someone who's also not too serious and full of himself, Mm. um, which is one of the prevailing pitfalls for actors and artists in general is that we tend to get very full of ourselves and very (laughs) um, pretentious, you know, oh, our art is so important. Like now more than ever, we really need to communicate through this improv show that like humans are human everywhere. Please buy tickets and buy t-shirts in the lobby. But like, it, it's all about fundamental human rights. And uh, also if you could like support me on Patreon, that'd be super cool. And it's this weird, like ludicrous pretension that so many of us get when we forget that we're just normal people who happen to do these things and happen to be passionate about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of times publicly, at least like in, in the way in which we present ourselves to the world at large, that takes the shape of taking ourselves very seriously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oh, I'm an actor. I'm a thespian. Ooh, look at me. I'm not going to make poop jokes. <laughs> oh no, that would be belie- beneath me. Which is, I mean, sure, if that's what floats your goat, but like, that's just inaccurate to human experience. And mm. so saying, yes, I'm an actor. Yes, I'm a carpenter. Also, I really like petting dogs. It communicates that I'm not, it hopefully communicates that I'm not too pretentiously full of myself. Uh, to try to convey myself as some grand professional or some such. I'm only a narcissist part-time. Yes. Fun anecdote, hopefully brief. Um, When I was uh, interviewing at a scholarship weekend for my university, for my undergraduate degree, Mm. uh, it was a big scholarship weekend. They had a couple hundred high schoolers all there, and they had us taking part in... Uh, a book discussion of a book that we'd read, of a current political or social issue discussion, um, as well as an interview, a couple interviews, I think. Um, And our responses to uh, all of those things, you know, would, would judge how much of a scholarship we got. In my individual interview, which is the last thing on my schedule, um, I was very tired and very fed up with all of the pretension and all of the the high school students trying so hard to prove how smart they were and how much they deserved this bigger scholarship or this bigger thing and bragging about all their accomplishments. And I, oh man, it was, it was tiring. It was exhausting. Also, it was a, a very long social weekend. So my social battery was entirely mm-hmm. depleted. Um, and we, we get up, there's a handful of us in the, in the lobby before we're going to be portioned out to our various interview rooms. And we're each told, inside this room, there will be three interviewers, and on a desk in front of them will be a bowl of candy. Do not ask for any candy or take any candy or look at the candy in anything other than just a normal glancing past it way. Which, just as a piece of, like... I, I, I don't know if that was an institutional thing that they were playing with all of us or whether that was just like, 
someone had tried to steal a bowl of candy and the professor's office, who it was, had saved that for himself. And so they're just telling like, oh, by the way, that's going to be in Professor Bingley's office. And he has a bowl of mints because he liked mints. So please don't take any because those are his. Like it could be that or it could be an institutional head trip. That sounds like a psychological experiment that, that you're not actually here for the interview. You're just here for testing purposes. That that's exactly what it felt like. And especially in a, in a, a stressful environment where none of us are quite thinking at clearly we're all in a, certainly a, a heightened state of consciousness. Hmm. And so I, I was fed up with it. I walked in, I did my interview. It went very, very well. I, have the capacity to be a charming chap, winsome even. And um, I got up and my interviewer's faces were just so polite, so satisfied with what was going on and my answers. And in a piece of what might have been self-sabotage, I'm as of yet unsure, uh, I got to the door put my hand on the doorknob, turned around and said, oh, by the way, one other thing you should know about me. I'm an egotistical narcissist. And I walked <laughs> out of the room. Uh, Wait, so this was the interview for the place you're going to? No, this was an interview for my undergraduate degree. Oh, okay. This was when I was, at the time, 17. Um, and it... So, like, I'd already been accepted. I knew I was going to the school. It's just a matter of how much money I would have to pay for it. And so I walked out and about 10 steps later realized what I'd done. And immediately I, I lost all sensation below my neck. I was just sort of floating back to the lobby. And I looked like I'd just seen a ghost. And they asked me what, how it had gone. And I told them that. And my fellow students who were also there to interview looked at me like I was mad which I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I proceeded to get a 75% tuition scholarship. Um, so I don't know whether I would have gotten higher and they bumped me down because of that comment or whether I would have gotten lower and they're like, all right, what? Sure, <laughs> sure. And bumped me up. I, I don't know. I do love it. At least you're being honest. <laughs> that was the way that I explained it to my mother when I told her about it the next day. She looked askance at me, but said <laughs> nothing. Yeah, it seems like a TV moment. This actually transitions well. You were just talking about bodily sensations and the lack thereof. How... What has your relationship with your body been? It is... This is going to be a rambling response. Um, as though any of the responses that I have given up, and, up until this point have not been rambling. It has been confusing at various times. I'll, I'll say it's a thesis statement, which... Mm communicates very, very little, but leaves me so much room to support that claim in my body paragraphs. <laughs> I'm just going to mention that Sam is doing finger guns and there's a lot of judgment. That's right. And all of it is deserved. <laughs> yeah, my, 
I have a physical form. And I always have. Finding a place to start is is kind of difficult in the moment, even though I knew this was going to be the question and like the topic at hand. It's a little complicated because I spend a lot of time aggravatedly aware that I have a physical body. Mm. Uh, it It's actually one of the things that I routinely say uh, just in life when I've been sitting for a while and I stand up and my legs are stiff and sore, my response is typically, oh, I'm remembering that I have legs. Oh, and it is not a good memory. Mm. I wish I did not. Mm. Uh, or the many, many times as someone with chronic allergies uh, that I have wished to cut off my nose. I know that would not solve the problem, but by goodness, it seems like an attractive solution sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, and so there's a lot of what may be, I haven't talked to a counselor about this, so I don't know, um, what may be body-hating in some regard, but I don't think it really is that. There's mm -hmm. a... There's an awareness of the brokenness of the world on, mm -hmm. on a whole, on a grand scale, and of the way that that transitions into me just being a guy who didn't treat his body all that great for most of his life um, in terms of eating good things or exercising or stretching, lifting with my legs rather than my back. Like mm -hmm. all, of, all of those things that I did not do um, and still to an extent don't do depending on, on the specific thing. Um, like now I'm starting to reap the benefits of my life choices. And I'm starting to wake up with more back pain. I'm starting to, to wake up with jaw pain. And, and, and just the various things that start to happen when you grow older a little bit at a time, as the days march on in the way that linear time does, like that awareness of a body not working in the way that you have experienced in the past mm. is one of the big ways in which I experience it now, mm. like on a what I would say a moment by moment basis or mm. a percentage of the day that I'm actively aware of it. Mm. Given that I've spent the last several years working in a carpentry shop as well, there's a whole lot of bodily awareness mm. involved in that because it's a, it's a physical craft that you're working with your body on. And so much of my job has been dealing with muscle memory. And it is one of the things that I struggle with when I try to teach people who aren't used to doing carpentry things how to do it safely. I realize more and more, oh, I have just built into my body and my muscles and my bones hmm. not only how to do this thing, but how to do it safely. And so when I say, keep your hands out of the path of a saw blade, that for me is second nature. And so when I shift a board and it's just an automatic thing that both hands will be mm. moving simultaneously in a safe manner. Or just the simple way that I'll brace something heavy against myself and set it down. Um, there's a lot of usage of my body and bodily awareness involved in that. All of this has really been a discussion of my current uh, thoughts when it comes to a body that experiences a lot of like pain things because of sore and lifting heavy things to cover over me trying to think of like 
historical, like what has been my relationship to my body in my past. I'm hmm. still buffering on that one for a second. Because, yeah, right now you're staying in a very physical. Yeah, a very. Physical as detached from the rest of yourself. Yes, yes. It's not answering the question is what it is. It's not answering the question of what my relationship to my body is. It's describing <laughs> the things that my body happens to do. Mm. Um, Everyone tries to escape it. Yeah, yeah, they do. I mean, I'm asking a question that that uh, would be difficult for me to answer. It's, it's the best way of being over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my relationship with my body is... tends to be adversarial mm. because there's there's all of the things that I've said up until now of just experiencing pain or discomfort in some way and for whatever reason my response to experiencing pain tends to be anger mm. um, it's rarely directed at something external it's usually anger at myself for being stupid enough to make that mistake or to put myself in that situation or to have done whatever brought me to the point of experiencing this physical pain um, or emotional pain, but that's not what we're talking about right now. Um, and so the, it, there's a, a tendency as I'm going about my life to respond to say stiffness when I wake up with annoyance at mm. my body, with aggravation at it for not, working in the way I want it to because on some level it doesn't measure up to what I want it to be. Mm. Like I have not terribly clear, but I have like goals and thoughts and capital O opinions about what my body should be experiencing. And most of the mm. time it should be experiencing not this pain, not this discomfort, not this mm. need to sneeze, not this runny nose, whatever. Mm. And then into broader categories that are much less clear-cut where things like, oh, I want my body to be able to do these, uh, you know, run longer without getting winded, uh, breathe better, mm. look more muscly in an appropriate way, uh, not always have that redness on my arms, not have these awkward hairs that grow on my Adam's apple. Um, these, you know, broadly body image issues of, of, a a difference between the way in which I want my body to be and the way in, that it in fact is. And when I encounter mm. that disparity, my response is not typically one of grace. Mm. Sometimes I manage to talk myself into being gracial, gracial, graceful or gracious, uh, about that, but that's honestly a rare response. It definitely tends a lot towards gritting my teeth and going for it. Mm. Um, trying to achieve that end goal, whatever that end goal is, be it more fitness, be it looking better, be it cooler hair, what, whatever that end goal that is related to my physical being. My mm. response is either complete apathy 
I see the disparity. I get angry about that. I say, ah, it would take too much work. Okay, I'm just going to mope about it and be sad and grumpy about it and just move on. The Eeyore option. Um, <laughs> or to look at it and get all very determined and say, all right, we're going to do this. Okay, so the running forums say that if I want to really do a good job of building up my running endurance and making my legs look cool and like my lungs work good, then I should do like this three month slow. No, I'm going to do it in three weeks. <laughs> I can do it because I have yet to meet a physical thing that I couldn't conquer. Urgh! And it's all very uh, domineering and hmm. conquestive. And yeah, uh, not healthy is another good way to put it. You know, it's a couple things, a couple things with that. Mm. But the first one that I noticed, it's right at the beginning of talking about this. You said that you have an adversarial relationship with your body, which immediately made me think adversary Satan. You have, and that you have a satanic relationship with your body <laughs> and I, I that that just tickles me and it, I think it's also somewhat true <laughs> oh that's good oh damn I'm doing the finger guns again <laughs> and there is yet more judgment happening oh man yeah. I don't have an immediate verbal response to that. Mm. Other than, like, the, the way in which... Okay, this is, this is the time to do these, these sorts of diatribes. So, I was listening to a podcast. I swear this is going to go somewhere. Uh, it's a very, very good podcast called The Lord of Spirits. Mm. Um hosted by a pair of Orthodox priests as they talk about various topics. Um, they do so in what some would call a very thought-out manner, what others would call an exceedingly long-winded manner. Each episode is like three hours long. Um, and so there's lots of digressions that end up serving their main point, but given that they're dealing with a lot of theological and philosophical issues that actually sort of matter on a, on a more base level, it touches mm. a lot of things. There's, when they talk about redemption, redemption isn't just a theological concept, but it also is involved in relationships and, and mental health and emotional health and physical being and all of these things. So like, whatever topic it is, they're going to pour into a lot of things. Um, but one of the things which they have brought up in a variety of episodes is the the disunification of the mm -hmm. human being um, that results from sin mm -hmm. not not in terms of you know you stole that candy bar and now all of a sudden your nose is disunified from your body but the the manner of of living a sinful manner of living of of mm. making those priority choices and choosing what to become like mm. 
rarely making a conscious choice in that particular way, but a, a subconscious one of, of choosing what your priorities are on a deeper level has a powerful effect. Um, I am not a theologian, so I don't know whether their theology places that as a product of original sin or something that happens within each of us. I don't know. But that the, the result of being a human being that lives in this broken world is this disunification, this discohesion uh, between the mind and the body. Not that they're entirely separate things, but that they are set at odds against each other. Mm. Uh, I will say that what I'm saying now is a lot of my thoughts that are based off of things that they have said, so anyone who has listened to them and says, hey, that wasn't in... They didn't say that. That's not orthodox belief. That's totally fair. It's it's me talking about something that they have touched on tangentially a variety of times and mm. has spurred thought in me. So, um, as mm. for general diaspora of all of the parts that make you you, mm. that all of the the aspects of one's being are set at odds with each other. Mm. That that is then contrasted with what holiness and righteousness and becoming Christ-like means, mm. which is the reunification of the human being. Mm. Um, it's healing. Mm. And it's, I think, uh, at the very least, having been raised in a largely Protestant and relatively heady and intellectual sort of milieu, mm. that's different from the way in which I was trained to think, where it's like, okay, you got your mind, your heart, your, what is it? Love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, and with all your soul and with all your strength. Like that those are, that's as far as the atomistic breakdown of your humanity goes. Mm -hmm. um, but I find the, the alternative of a much more complete shattering of the self. Mm. Well, much more accurate to my lived experience, but also much more, it makes the healing matter more. It is not just putting together a toddler a toddler's puzzle that has, mm. oh no, which of these four pieces goes in which of these four corners. But mm. when it's a thousand piece puzzle, when our attempts at healing and our attempts at reunification, our attempts at uh, working through adversarial relationships and conflicts within ourselves, we're slowly putting together portions of the puzzle to try and put those together again, to reunify, to heal those, those gaps and to heal those breaks. But it's such a complex web that mm. sometimes when you do that, you realize, oh no, this chunk doesn't actually go over here in the just right of middle. It actually goes up towards the top left. So you have to shift that, move a lot of things out of the other way. And so sometimes when you're healing from one thing, you may damage mm. another part of you, or you may further break apart parts of you that were at the very least next to each other and maybe had mm. grown comfortable next to each other. Uh, and so I see my relationship with my body as a part of that where mm. my, my active body image, what I see it to be, what I want it to be, what I see in it that I like, what I see in it that I hate, what it physically is apart from my observation, what other people see it mm. to be, all of these things are, are different from each other. Mm. And some of those awareness, 
some of those differences are, are more obvious mm-hmm. at various times. You know, when I've gone too long without a haircut and I look and I say, there's a, there's a disjunct between what I want my body to be and what it currently is. Mm. But that's, and so that's very obvious and very on, on top of my mind and very, very clear and explicit. But there's other disjunctures, things and practices that I'm doing that aren't, uh, that aren't treating myself as a complete coherent human being. Mm. Because I'll look at it and so I'll, I'll take this step, I'll go to get a haircut to make my body look more like the body that I want it to be. Mm. Or to appear that way and so that others will look at it and their viewing of me will be closer to what I want it to be, that sort of thing. Mm. But at the same time, I'll still probably go home and have a half dozen toaster waffles (laughs) covered in peanut butter and syrup (laughs) and very likely a beer and almost certainly not vegetables or fruit. (laughs) And I know the vegetables and fruit that I should be having. And I know that I should be like going out on a run, not because fitness is next to godliness, but because I'm asthmatic and so my lungs aren't super strong so it is a good thing for me to keep my lungs strong via cardiovascular exercise Mm -hmm. i know that it is a would be a good thing for me to close my laptop an hour before i go to bed and not watch another episode of (laughs) it crowd or whatever show i'm rewatching at that time um and so there's this complex dance, if you will, of trying to achieve what I want and trying to be good to my body at the same point as actively ignoring or actively doing things that are harmful or that are less than ideal for my body. And so it's this attempt of like, am I, am I doing the best I can for my body? Am Mm -hmm. I making the choices that support its health and its well-being? Mm -hmm. Um, Am I loving it well? as a lot of popular verbiage has, you know, love yourself, love your body, love the body you're in. Sure, great. I don't do that because I eat Wendy's. I don't do that because I don't eat much fruit. I don't do that because I don't give myself enough sleep. Uh, mm. And so I, it, there's an adversarial nature in, where there's maybe not a direct adversarial, there's a, a sort of implicit ignoring the needs and the value of my Mm. body involved in a lot of the choices that I make. And I tend to only care about the ones that have an immediate ramification on the other parts of me. Mm. And so because like the fact that I don't eat as much fruit and vegetables as I should, uh, hasn't yet had an immediate tangible effect that is sensible to me. And so I continue on in my unhealthy way. Mm. But if, for instance, I get COVID, like I did about a month ago, then I suddenly become very aware of my body and what it needs. And I'm Mm. like, okay, body, what can I give you to make all this better? And and so at that point, it's less of an honest antagonism Mm. and much more of a... it sounds like a negotiation. A negotiation that the thought in my head is almost a, a manager to an employee sort of mindset, but like mm-hmm. a bad manager. Mm-hmm. A manager who only cares about the employee insofar as that employee is able to deliver 
what is desired and needed mm. and who will only try to fix problems for the employee if those are clear and obvious threat to what the manager wants and what the manager needs. Mm. But in terms of long-term things, does not care. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that views the employee as an exploitable resource. Right. And so I think it, maybe it's less of an adversarial, although that could be taken to be that, more of an exploitative relationship, perhaps. Mm. Yeah, I hear a lot of language around what your body is and what you would like it to be mm-hmm. and the dissonance, I don't think is the right word, but the the lack of coherence between the two and i know that's true in your life in a number of ways yeah um i'll i'll I'll, I'll take that segue this (laughs) the sigui the way that word is spelled oh my gosh um okay so when i was a child when i was a young warthog Uh, I don't know what age. I was over at a friend's playing, and, uh, it was me and my older siblings, and him and his older siblings, another uh, family, and big passel of kids. And, you know, as kids playing, there's, shall we say, not many delightful feelings between the various age ranges of kids mm. you know the the younger brothers that was me uh don't look too fondly on their older sisters and older brothers and vice versa um so we were playing a remarkably aggressive game of tag and one of the older sisters not mine but one of my friend's older sisters started uh taunting me or like threat gaming oh, oh i'm gonna get you i'm gonna capture you you're gonna be our our you know capture whatever uh and you're gonna have i'm i was like six at the time so my memory is not exactly clear i remember the emotion of it very well but not so much the exact words she said but said something to the to the effect of uh we're going to force feminization upon you Mm. Of like, we're going to make you wear a dress or some such. And being the six-year-old boy I was playing with other six-year-old boys, that wasn't a... It wasn't socially or explicitly a thing which was an attractive or good thing to me. Right. That was, oh, no, no, girly, yeah! Cooties. Which immediately is a word that I never knew. I only found it when, like, Mm. reading Foxtrot. I had no idea what it was. Um... But just didn't want that, you know, forced upon me. Mm-hmm. And that specific, like, interaction stuck with me for a very long time. Mm. And I remember sometime later, uh, we had a dress-up bit, my family did, and dressing up in, like, a skirt and a couple other things. And my mom thought it was funny and cute and took a picture and so forth. And it was just another another th- weird thing that Samuel put on as a little kid. Mm-hmm. No one thought anything else of it. But 
it was, I very clearly remember the emotional experience of wanting something very badly and reaching out for it and trying it and then immediately backing away and be like, nope, not doing that again. And so like I mm. never dressed up in quote unquote female clothing again, unless it be something that was aesthetically served the purpose of looking like a Roman centurion or a, a knight or whatever I was dressing up as. Um, if it was something militaristic. Militaristic, adventuresome, yeah. something that Aragorn or some hmm. a- appropriately heroic figure uh, would wear. You know, Peter and Edmund and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Uh, but never dresses or skirts again, at least in my memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember a long time of that not being a thing for a while. Um, around the same time, was visiting a cousin, watching Nickelodeon or something on their TV, and there was some episode of some kids' show wherein there was a ray which would change the gender of whoever got shot with it. And so all the girls who got shot with it turned into dirty, smelly, skateboarding, angry boys. And all the the boys who got shot with it turned into uh, prissy, clean, talkative, catty uh, little Mm. girls. Both of them very, you know, unjust stereotypes of of the opposite type. Um, And that, as some of the modern parlance is, lived in my head rent-free for a very long time. And I started to, as I grew older, I encountered more and more pieces of, of fiction about body swapping. You know, mm. almost every sci-fi series out there. I'm pretty sure Star Trek Voyager, Next Gen, the original series, uh, Stargate, SG-1, and Atlantis, I think, both have episodes on it. Like, all of these sci-fi shows, almost all of them have body swapping episodes. And a lot of them end up with the the final playing musical chairs of trying to get the right people back in the right bodies. Mm. Um, and they're, they're delightful, they're fun episodes because you get to see the performers doing their best to mm. perform as each other. And it's a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just good TV, good writing. But those I really, I really delight in. Mm. And mm. at various times when there were male characters who had been suddenly put in a female's body that there was a part of me that did not understand the desire to go back. Mm. Uh, Mm. Now, a lot can be made of this and also nothing can be made of this. Like, one can can, can look at these these experiences and make a great deal or make not very much out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, More recently... In adulthood, uh, I got to know a variety of of people who had similar experiences to mine, different experiences to mine. But I met the first person I knew who was a trans woman. I met the the first people I I had met who were non-binary. I started to make friends with people uh, who were on varieties of spectrums within LGBTQ. Um, who, who identified as various sexualities, various genders, mm. um, and who would do so at various times, who would say, eh, 
I'm gender non-conforming because some days I feel like a man and some days I feel like a woman. Mm. And I realized, oh, that's a possibility. Like, that's a thing. Mm. I wonder if I'm, if I'm a trans woman. I wonder. Mm. Um, and I sort of tossed it out. Um, and it, it stayed as a, a niggling thing in the back of my head for a very long time. And, and still does in some regard. Um, a variety of things that I realized as a, as a grown man that I was sexually attracted to were things having to do with feminization, were things having to do with uh, either social positions or clothing items or jobs or roles that were broadly considered within modern American society as uh, traditionally female mm. uh, or traditionally feminine at the very least. Um, and I, I found myself tending towards those when I was in a, 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 a sexual frame of mind, for lack mm. of a better word. Um, and for a while, then immediately once I wasn't in that frame of mind, I would bounce back and say, oh, no, 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 no. We're shouting all of that. We're putting up the do not cross police tape. We're putting up the quarantine plastic sheeting. We're just closing that door and telling everyone that that wing of the castle is off limits. Hmm. But as always happens in the stories where someone tells someone that the west wing of the castle is off limits, they inevitably go to the west wing. I, I find it interesting that you're using the role of you being the beast and that you're shutting Belle out. It's a deeply appropriate metaphor <laughs> that I'm very satisfied with. Ah. <laughs> uh, and so there, there came a point where my internal bell did, in fact, get into the West Wing and looked around and said, Oh, shit. There's some stuff here that needs to be dealt with. I wonder what. And being human means that the things you deal with are never done being dealt with. Unless it's cards, dealing lasts forever. It, it's just a continual process. Grief, mourning, they last forever. Growth lasts forever. Change lasts forever. All of these things are continuing processes. Um, to use a good old Buckminster Fuller misquote, uh, I am not a thing, a noun. I am a verb. I am a process. He went on to say an integral function of the universe, but I think he was kind of full of himself on that one. Uh, we are verbs. We are active by nature, and we are changeable by nature. Um, mm. This doesn't mean that we ought to change from various things. Ideally, we are changing to the good. Mm. We are always doing our best to change ourselves into something that more closely images what is truly good. Of course, everyone has different ideas about what is good, so bear a little there. But all that to say that I am now and will continue to be dealing with my relationship with gender, mm -hmm. specifically with my gender, um, where I am at this day, 
at 2 something p.m., 3 something p.m., sitting just outside of the sunshine on this chair, is that I feel like a man. I'm aware that there have been days and times when I have felt like I was not a man, when I have looked at my beard and hated it because it reminded me that I was a man, when I looked at my genitalia and hated them because they reminded me that I was a man, when I looked at my lack of bosom and hated that lack because it meant that I was a man. Mm. Is there a relationship in there in terms of autoeroticism, like wanting to have the things on your body to which you are sexually attracted? Maybe. I don't know. It's something which is a, is a confusing question to ask and one which, at least when I've asked a lot of other, other folks who have gone through similar processes, that they too have at least asked that question. Mm. Um, which can be a pretty triggering question for a lot of trans women as well. Absolutely. And it, there's, there's a whole lot of weird hangups, not, not only having to deal with our society's very negative view of trans people. Mm -hmm. um, and so lots of societal, you know, hammered into you that you are what you are. And, you know, anyone who wants to change gender only wants to get their jollies by spying in the other gender's restroom or something. Mm. Absolute twuff like that. Um, because that that's a, a very high price to pay for something that is incredibly not worth anything um, and not even desirable for most folks. And so there, there's a, a definite weird conflation because the way in which I realized a lot of the, the things in me that tended towards societally feminine characteristics were typically in times when I was thinking in a sexual manner or, mm. or, or in that state of consciousness. And so that, that correlation of timing or the, or the fact that those two are together means that they are in some way inseparable when I think about them. Mm. Or at the very least that I have to be very, very careful in where I try to separate them. Um, because I also recently came to the realization that I was bisexual, mm -hmm. that I was sexually attracted to pretty much anyone. Pansexual is arguably a better term, mm. but bisexual is just more broadly understood. So that's the one that I go with. Mm -hmm. um, and so that sort of complicated it because then I realized, oh, I'm also attracted to people who have the same set of physical characteristics, who have, you know, the, the, the genitals that I have and the, the beard that I have. I'm also attracted to people like that. And yet I also have moments of not wanting them on my person. So there's, at the very least, that complicates the question of, do I just want this for sexual autoeroticism or, or mm -hmm. do I want this for some deeper reason. And there's also then the very serious question of many of the things that are recurring triggers, if you will, are external to my, my body and my personage, mm. be that clothing items or colors or patterns on clothing or mm. silhouettes when we're talking like fashion silhouette. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are so 
foundationally tied to a specific time in a specific place. Mm -hmm. There is nothing masculine about a pair of pants and nothing feminine about a skirt. There's nothing masculine about no lipstick or feminine about lipstick, where it's entirely just a variety of things that different people have put on their bodies at various times and that our society currently views as X, Y, or Z. There is no, quote-unquote, objective masculinity or femininity to Mm -hmm. any of these things. Mm -hmm. And so there is a a confusion, or at the very least it raises a question of how much of this sort of complicated ball of emotions is tied to things that I just don't particularly enjoy the social expectations of my current time in society of what it expects from me to be a man and what it expects from others to be a woman. Mm. And how much of that is to do with my relationship with my body specifically. Like how much do I want to have boobs vice how much do I just want to be able to wear a skirt Mm. or to have long hair or what have you. Aesthetically, having long hair seems really cool. Practically, (laughs) oh my gosh, it bugs the snot out of me. I grew it out to have a ponytail in early COVID. And honestly, it wasn't a bad look. Like even my sister said, yeah, okay, go for it. But, oh, it was... Long hair is very frustrating. And like middling long hair, like when it's just barely long enough mm-hmm. for the ponytail, it looks so scruffy and scraggly and it tickles all. How much of the aesthetic of these specific feminine things is attractive to me and how much of it is actually a bodily question? And that's yet another thing that I'm going to probably deal with until the day I die. Mm-hmm. And that's probably something where there's not going to be a clear border or, or a clear line of this is how far I go or this is, mm. this is where what I actually feel ends and this is where the experiences of others around me have made me think that I feel something. Because um, when I talked to other people who had experienced similar attractions to feminine aesthetics, they had gone all the way and said, yeah, I went ahead, came out as a trans woman, and now things are great. Mm -hmm. Um, and so is there some level of peer pressure there? Unknown. Um, Mm. unlikely just given the sort of proportions of people in my life who are trans women, not many to everyone who's not trans woman, almost everybody. (laughs) Uh, so it's unlikely that the peer pressure of the couple trans women I'm friends with, uh, outweighs the peer pressure from everyone else, but it's at the very least a valid consideration to, to raise. When I'm trying to untangle the spaghetti bowl of emotions and to untangle how I'm feeling. And of course, all of this is then complicated by the fact that emotions change. Mm -hmm. That my emotional experience on some days does not match it on other days. Mm -hmm. And this uh, is a very familiar experience to a lot of people who... Uh, can describe themselves as non-binary or gender non-conforming, um, some of whom ident- will use he, she, or they pronouns depending on the day. Mm-hmm. Or say, yeah, some days I feel manly, some days I feel womanly, so I'm just going to exist and do me. I'm an obsessive-compulsive son of a bitch, so that doesn't sound like a very attractive way of life. It sounds deeply uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um 
because I thrive off of some level of rigidity, some level of guidelines socially and mentally. Um, and also like in terms of my interactions with other human beings mm -hmm. as a socially anxious human being, mm. I really thrive off of having clearly understood roles and expectations to fulfill or very good reasons to not fulfill the expectations that have been set upon me. Right. And to enter into that world and just say, I'm me. Undefinably. That makes me want to have a panic attack. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying that that is necessarily a, a wrong choice for anyone that has made that choice. Mm. But my particular set of experiences and mental processes make it seem at the very least untenable as an option. Mm. Yeah. When you were talking about the, the social pressure and things like that, I was thinking, well, these, these are the examples that you've seen of people who have experienced interest in feminine things. And, and this is what they have done with that. And this is a very clear way that they have done that in specific boxes of, I thought this, I did this, I'm happy. Yes. Uh, and being at the same time as having this conversation, a Christian complicates things even further. Um, I was wondering when we were going to get to that juicy bit. Uh, well, for right now, I just want to bring in one fact, and that is that the majority of people in my life to whom I am emotionally intimate in some way, involved with communally, um, tend towards the more vaguely conservative side of, of, of some mm -hmm. social politics. Um, and for a lot of them, uh, they see a lot of modernity as this idolization of self-actualization mm. that uh, our society is going to hell in the handbasket. I, I say not being charitable to, to many, many people, but that we have societally made a big deal about everyone living their truth individually and everyone being so rabid to define themselves, to mm -hmm. create boxes to sit in, all of the personality tests to say, oh, I do it this way because I'm a Taurus ENFP number three on the Enneagram, bisexual, non-binary. And so like they, you just, it's, it's like the, the little bits of flair on someone's name tag at a chain mm -hmm. restaurant, at like a TGI Fridays, where they put enough stickers and pins on their suspenders or what have you of, oh, my name is Joey, and I am here's the various boxes in which I have defined myself. And so a lot of people look at that and say, and, and criticize that as a, a healthy societal expectation for us to have for ourselves. Hmm. Or at, at the very, very least, to look at our general milieu and say, everyone seems really, really desirous of making boxes to sit in, of defining themselves by these arbitrary terms. Some of which are arbitrary, like personality tests, and others are less arbitrary and have to do much more with mm. a, a real, actual lived experience. For instance, I would not say that someone who calls themselves black because they are black is making a box for themselves to sit in. That has to do with an, ident an identity and an experience which is 
a lived and real one as opposed to one that they're just tacking on. It's not taking something on as as a factor of an identity like in a, a video game character creator. It's just a part of who they are as a, as a person. Mm. Uh, and so there's there's a there is a loosey goosiness which I think is healthy. Mm. There's a, a freedom or at least a an appropriate caution when approaching any culturally charged term to apply to yourself, uh, like trans woman, for instance, there's, there's a, I think a healthy amount of caution in approaching that, not only considering what coming out as a trans woman will do to your life or will do to your relationships Mm -hmm. or, or what that will change in your life, Mm -hmm. but also understanding that human beings do change, that the experience is rarely a static thing, that there are days that everyone feels a little bit prettier and every days that everyone feels a little bit uglier or more masculine or more feminine, or mm. uh, that we do experience these shifts and cycles and unpredictable changes within our ourselves and our emotional states. And we should not be, at the very least, eager to try and stop that by means of labeling it. Mm. Um, because, A, that's not going to function. It's not going to work. You're not going to... Your emotional experience is not going to completely solidify and become a nice, static, ex- expectable thing mm. by you magically saying, I am now! Insert here. That that doesn't mm. end the questions. It's an answer that has to be lit. There is that discomfort that I described in describing myself theoretically as non-binary or not or gender non-conforming, mm. um, because it it doesn't give me enough guideline to work by. But on the other hand, it is a wise caution to approach any guideline carefully and slowly and thoughtfully, and understand that it is at, in the end only a guideline that it only exists insofar as you kind of allow it to exist within your life. Mm. Um, and to not, not use it as a prescriptive thing. You know, I've mm. experienced these sets of things, and so I claim to be a trans woman. And as a trans woman, I then expect to experience these sets of things, and I experience mm-hmm. them, thereby I must be a trans woman. And this sort of sick circular reasoning that it encourages or at least the the expectations and experiences that it encourages or allows for um Mm. are ones that we should be thoughtful in approaching and that i try to be thoughtful in approaching Mm -hmm. um it's one of the reasons why and this is what i hope will be a good segui uh segue into faith is I'm going to bring up Lord of Spirits again Um, because their most recent episode as as we're talking um, was a Q&A and one of the the people who asked a question was uh, a counselor in Portland who was asking about orthodox views when it comes to to trans folks um, specifically in how best for him as an orthodox Christian to serve folks who describe themselves as, as, as trans. Uh, mm. And I was 
honestly incredibly impressed by the response mm. of the priests uh, who, who host Lord of Spirits. Mm. On, a, on a fundamental scale, their, their response was a trans person is fundamentally confused, um, which is as, not surprising. As per usual in a traditional perspective. Yes, it is as per usual. It is not surprising. Um, but for my specific experience, they effectively held the opinion that no that being attracted to certain roles and certain societal expectations or, or not um, being attracted to certain roles and certain aesthetics and certain societally considered feminine or masculine things when you are the opposite of that um, is in no way a bad thing or a sinful thing. Mm that you can be a guy and be into whatever you like, that you can enjoy dresses, that you can enjoy fashion, that you can want to work at a, at a Sephora, that if you're a woman, you can want to spend your days as a lumberjack. You can shave with a box cutter and wear denim underpants <laughs> and, you know, drink whiskey at night and do your best to become Nick Offerman. Uh, <laughs> that much of their, their terse, it wasn't a terse answer, but their brief answer to a question as it was one question in many questions, mm -hmm. um, seems to imply that for many people who struggle with gender issues, there's a likelihood that a lot of that has to do with our society attempting or our general understanding of our society, trying to pigeonhole us into a very narrow view of what it means to be a man or a woman. And that if we healthily broaden those appropriately and just say, it means to be a man, like being a man means to try to be a priest to God. And being a woman means trying to be a priestess to God. You can define what that means theologically, and you can define what that means in terms of what governing virtues there are, or what have you. But that's like the, the fundamental core of gender is this thing. A lot of the rest doesn't matter. And so mm. it becomes if you if you broaden those those pigeonholes of what male and female are defined as, then a lot of people who struggled within those boundaries now have room and discover that, yeah, I didn't want to go all the way over there. I just sort of wanted to go over here. And now that's okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and so as we're talking at this moment on this day, that is where I find myself mm. is on this scale of, I experience a lot of delight and interest in things that are broadly considered to be feminine. I find a lot of those things attractive. I find a lot of guys attractive in ways that people think are feminine. Um, and that is okay. Like mm -hmm. that's, that doesn't matter because my personhood or my gender is defined by something other than mm -hmm. these surface level interests. It's mm -hmm. defined by functionally my relationships. Right. Uh, so yes, that is the end of that specific train of thought. <laughs>
I think. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, you know from, from talking to me that I do not enjoy boxes. I fuck boxes. Yes, yes. It's interesting coming from such a a pretty rigid religious background that sometimes I meet similar rigidity um, in in trans communities as well. Mm-hmm. And by this I'm not I'm not saying all of trans communities, oh, but um, I mean this is what happens when when people are attacked and they need to defend themselves. Yeah. Um, it's certainly what I do. But I I, I'm not interested in being being stuck in a box, um, which is why, you know, I, for a while I, I went by he or she and chose the label of genderqueer, um, which it, it's, I, I love that it's, it's a label that's sort of like fuck gender stuff, but also it's its own label. <laughs> but um and you know now I identify as a trans man but I I'm never quite comfortable with that and I'm like I'm a gender nonconforming man or I'm a a feminine man or something you know um use he him and respect me and I identify on the masculine side of things but also it's more complicated than that yes um that's just hard to say to people when you first meet them it is it really is, especially because about half of those things for a lot of people in the U.S. will immediately make the conversation so much worse of a conversation <laughs> and so much more damaging of a conversation. Yes. Yes. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll mention here that you and I, the church that we go to is a liturgical more traditional church and by more traditional i mean i generally don't like to use the word conservative but um more conservative views on gender and sexuality yes i will say that given the usage of the word conservative i do just want to add a disclaimer here that the because that's a that's a term that could be applied theoretically as well to Westboro Baptist Church. Um, yes. By the fact that that you and I both go to this church and have the experiences that we have described, one could infer, but I just want to make explicit here, that uh, we are people do not try to burn us at the stake. <laughs> um, at the very least, for myself. Uh, most of the response of the church community has been, I'm not going to say supportive in that particular regard, right? but has been an attempt at loving. Yes. Um, and there, there is... Well-intentioned at the very least. There is definitely care. Yes. And affection. Not malicious is, I guess, what I'm trying to get the point at. Yeah. And, you know... Neither of us are particularly interested in hiding who we are, and you especially are not. 
(laughs) (laughs) Don't do that. Um, Um, Yeah, I guess your, your experience with Christianity, and this does not need to be limited to sexuality and gender stuff, but obviously this has come up several times as we've been talking about your relationship with your body. Dualism, you used the the word shattered, which I, I really enjoyed. But yeah, religion has come up a few times. And I, yeah, run, run away with that. <laughs> um, part of... I think part of a human being as a human being craves religion. I think there's a myriad of reasons why every society in every corner of the earth that we have ever found that ever had human beings created some form of religious something. Mm -hmm. Um, Those looked massively different in different places, but also looked shockingly similar for how different a lot of their societies were Mm. um, and how many of their societies grew. For instance, if you looked at a lot of the religious rites that went into Gaulish worship pre and even during Roman occupation, you know, these are the people who then went on to become the French, who went on to establish the French Academy and to build Notre Dame. Uh, these same people, their rights look shockingly similar to a lot of the religious rights done by a number of Native American tribes, including, I believe, the Ojibwe and the Cherokee, as well as a number of things that the Eastern Islanders did, as well as a number of things that I'm sure people in almost every continent, every corner, like there's not only do humans not only have humans shown an enormous predilection towards religion, but also that they go about it in very similar ways. A lot of modern folks with a good deal of, as C.S. Lewis calls it, chronological snobbery, imagining that they are, because they're later in the timeline, smarter and better and more advanced than anyone who came before, Mm. um, say that we have outgrown this religious proclivity. say that it is unnecessary, it's vestigial. I think that is both snobbish and rather blind. Um, Sometimes willfully so, sometimes not. Um, But I think that religious experience and uh, a tendency towards seeking God and seeking, in a broad sense, anything that is nonsensical, i.e. non unsensible, you cannot use your senses to discern it, Mm -hmm. Uh, to seek something outside of our understanding of the physical world and its laws. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that is one of the aspects of a human being. And so when I talked about the shattering of of a person, the way in which this disunification, this disharmony that exists within me and I believe within all human beings, Um, wherein different parts of us are set at odds with other parts of us. I think this religious motivation, proclivity, whatever you want to call it, is one of those. Mm. And is likewise 
often set at odds with other things and other things are set at odds with it. Um, and it then becomes a fun game of sort of internal cat and mouse to see what comes out the other side of that. Who... Hmm. If you take uh, one of my friends who came out as, as gay when he was 15, uh, and his church responded very negatively, mm -hmm. and uh, so he stopped going to church and hasn't gone back to a church since, mm -hmm. um, which is fair. He experienced some trauma related to that. His family still loves him as a human being, but is, does not support his life choices in that regard. It's a very common story. It is not news. It is not surprising. It is not a rare story. Unfortunately. Very unfortunately. Um, and so he came into a point in his life wherein this religious part of his life, socially but also personally, was set at odds with another part of his life. In this case, what he perceived... Uh, Saying what he perceived his sexuality to be is, an un is not what I is going to imply that it's not real or that he was lied to or that he was imagining it. Mm -hmm. But that the his sexuality and his religion were set at odds. Mm -hmm. And out out the other end of that, the sexuality won on that on that particular conflict, mm. where when faced with these two things that mm. were a part of his life, he chose this one has the greater validity or the greater importance uh, and thereby I'm going to choose this one. Some people have chosen other things. Um, I'm not saying that, that was the wrong choice. I'm not saying it was the right choice. Uh, it is simply a description of what that happened. What comes out the other side of such a conflict is such a, a, an individual effect that has to do with 8,000 things, your experiences with your church, your experiences with the people in your church, your experiences with God, with your faith, your experiences with your sexuality, your certainty about your sexuality, your comfort with your sexuality, the ability to talk with people about sexuality mm -hmm. or about any of these things. All of these are factors that can affect either side in any direction a thousand different ways. And there's a thousand more factors that can affect that your your race, your culture, your economic bracket, your social bracket, all of these things. It's impossible to determine what would come out if a person who's raised in a religious household experiences uh, non-traditional, or that's, that's a loaded phrase, which I shouldn't use, um, experiences non-straight sexuality mm. or non-cisgender. So those are almost always in our current world set at odds aggressively. And the faith to which I hold, Christianity, um, has done a real shit job. <laughs> it's just really shit to bed. Um, in yeah. so many ways. And it is... Not only it not only has it shit the bed, but it continues to do so and to lie in it. Um, and as you'd expect, when you're lying in a bed of fecal matter, 
it's not a good situation. Very mm -hmm. few good things come out of that or come out of that not covered in shit. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean that everything that comes out of it is bad. It just means that there's a whole lot of stuff that it has to work through. So Christianity has done a really terrible job of communicating what, well, scripture actually says and what that should actually mean in our day-to-day -day life to the rest of the world and also has done, we've all done a pretty not great job of actually acting on the words of Christ. You know, the whole uh, love each other. They will know you are my disciples by your love. Um, like, kind of a big thing. And it and it's really hard. Mm. James says true religion is this. It's caring for widows and orphans. Uh, I haven't done that. I've, I've, I've given money to some charities, but that's, that's, uh-huh. Mm. Uh, so I'm, I'm not in a good way. Like what, what Christianity actually looks like. And this is again, singing the praises of Lord of Spirits. What they come back to at the end of every episode, no matter what it is, especially the ones that are bigger and theological, like, yes, you know, Bible translations or the validity of these particular archaeological documents or whatever. What does this mean? What it means is that you should go out and love your neighbor and care for your neighbor as best as you can and teach them to do the same. Mm. Like, that's what it should be. Of course, everyone has ideas on what loving your neighbor looks like. Yes. And there's this truly cancerous conception that... Um, Telling the truth, this horrible phrase, telling the truth in love. Mm. Um, I was thinking of that exact phrase. It's, it had a good origin at one point, but has been misused really aggressively with a whole lot of bad theology because it doesn't, it has a very bad idea of what love means. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's used by a lot of people as carte blanche to scream obscenities at people, to use slurs and derogatory terms at people with whom they disagree, um, to confront people who are quote-unquote living in sin. And it's... The way that love is described in almost all of scripture is laying down your life for the good of another person, mm. um, is caring for their bodily needs and telling them about Jesus and telling them that Hey, look around. This world is pretty screwed up, isn't it? Yep. Well, it doesn't have to be because our God cares about us and loves us and, you know, is, is there for you to love you and please love him back and let me love you so that you can love me and love the person next to you and on and on the circle goes. Mm. And we earnestly care for the, the physical and emotional and mental and spiritual well-being of each other and we do our best to become more like the God who sacrificed himself for us, mm. who suffered a death that we can't imagine, mm. even though he knew that so many of us would look at that and then laugh and walk away. It, the crucifixion is love. So when we talk about saying the truth with love, 
that looks a bit different. If it's not just say the truth, but be nice about it, or maybe don't swear at them, but like, you know, say the truth, but like with a, a, a dove chocolate. No, it's sacrifice. It is physical well-being. It is mental mm. well-being. It is caring for the humanity of mm. another human being. Mm. So what does telling the truth in love look like mm. when you disagree about something pretty fundamental like, say, sexuality? Well, a lot of that has to do with defining terms, understanding that... It, Understanding that in a such a verbal age and society as ours, words have been used a whole lot, and as such, they've come to mean a lot of different things. And so when we talk about what sex is for, or when we talk about sex in any way, shape, or form, what are we defining it as? And what are we defining its place as? Why are we saying no, no gay sex, but have all the straight sex you like? See a person with other genitals? Go for it, my dude. Like, that's clearly not what's going on, but mm -hmm. that's the sort of spirit in which a lot of it is being treated, that you are bad because you are gay, because you have, yours an abomination, what have you. Which, with a, little bit of misuse of Bible and bad theology, one could say, mm. and many people have said. But when you look at it as, as a sacrificial love that you're saying, that, that changes it into earnestly trying to approach another human being who has just as much validity for existence as you do, Mm -hmm. who has just as much understanding of existence as you do, who is a better authority on their lived experience than you are, doing your best to communicate to them true love. And this means true kindness, caring for their well-being in every regard. This means caring about the time and the place that you talk to them. This mm -hmm. means caring about the words. This means caring about them enough to do research, to listen to them describe their experience of things. To not approach it as though you have the only right answer. To not approach it with arrogance. Mm. To approach mm. it with humility and say, Hi, I'm a fucked up human being. And I love Jesus. And you're a fucked up human being. And you love Jesus. And the Bible says this thing. And it's hard and it's confusing. And your experience that has probably been harder and more confusing than mine is. Can we talk about this? Can we... Mm try to understand and be clear about what terms we're using so that we don't, through misunderstanding or, or foolishness, happen to hurt each other. Let's be clear on what we think sex is for. Because if you think that sex is only for procreation, then anything outside of that, be that masturbation or be that an orgy, anything outside of procreative sex becomes not the right kind of sex. And so then you approach it as not one person who is in the right reaching out to one person who is in the wrong, but you reach out saying, yeah, I know, I masturbate. I sin all the time. It is a, a part of my experience that I sin in the same way that you do. And 
This is why I believe it to be a sin. Do you think that's the same thing? If you approach someone on that level as a co-sufferer, as someone who's not better than them, mm. who's not more right than them because you're special, if you approach them with humility fundamentally and are willing to sacrifice your pride, that is the love in which you can tell the truth. Mm. And that is a love that I've encountered a couple times in a couple pastors, several scattered individuals, mm. and I am eternally grateful that I had the, the good fortune, had the blessing of encountering those people, of at, at crucial moments in my life being mentored by people who believed this and who put it into practice. Mm. And that is a blessing which very few people share. And mm. I am heartbroken by that mm. because it's, it's caused so much pain, that lack of, of an understanding of what speaking the truth in love can mean, mm. of what responding can mean. And that's, it's one of the big things that I want to be as a human being, where I see my place as a bisexual dude who's spent a long time pondering about my gender, who also loves hymns and Jesus and sings loud about it. Uh, I see my place as in this awkward, tiny <laughs> little cell in the middle of this Venn diagram as a crucial one not only as a as someone who can co hopefully communicate to the the church and to fellow christians what it actually means and how to do this and what it what's involved in not being arrogant in this particular way what's involved in actually the experience of so many people who have come out as lgbtq and the the horrible traumas that they have endured mm -hmm communicating that to the church, but also communicating to this other community in which I find myself of largely gay and bisexual, the people I know are mostly bi and pan and trans. Um, there's a few people who are just straight gay or straight lesbian, <laughs> but pretty few of them. Most of us are just like, man, people are hot. Um, <laughs> but like to, to communicate then to this other side that, hey, your trauma is valid and I'm so sorry that you've had to experience this. And it is a horrible thing. And I, I still want you to know that our God loves you and loves me because we're all fucked up in our own different Ben and Jerry's circle of flavors of fucked up. Mm -hmm. um, that horrible quote from Fifty Shades of Grey, I'm Fifty Shades of Fucked Up. Uh, like we're, we're all different, different flavors of messed up. Can we try to, to love Christ and get through this? Mm. And I see this as my goal in life on like a, a vocational scale, because as an actor, like the majority of people that I spend time with are at the very minimum socially liberal if not the fact that most of them, okay, I'm, I'm making broad generalizations, which I shouldn't, but 
the majority of the theater community in which I currently find myself and the last three theater communities in which I find myself were LGBTQ. Yeah. Um, and, and so, like, I am... I love my job, and I like it, and I'm good at it, so all of those wonderful things. But also, it puts me in this unique place where I am allowed community with, on the one hand, a group of people who share my affection for penises and pussies, but on the other hand, to share community with a bunch of people who share my affection for the blood and body of our Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us, who suffered an unimaginable death for us. And that, that center point where I find myself and where you find yourself is, it's a tiny center point. Mm -hmm. There's very few of us, but it, it's also a very important center point. And it, it's, a, it's a place where all of the questioning and all of the confusing feelings that we've had to suss out through our trying to understand ourselves and our sexualities and our desires and our wants and our genders, mm -hmm. we can use all of that not only to help us build life rhythms that are more supportive to our actual health, but also to support others who have experienced similar things and also to communicate what it means to have experienced them to people who haven't communicated, who haven't experienced those things. Mm. Um, and it's, I'm not saying that it's a demand that every person who's experienced this has to be an ambassador because that's frankly a chauvinistic and patriarchal view that mm. every woman has to be an ambassador for all women, but uh, any action by anyone from a minority becomes indicative of that entire mm -hmm. minority. It, very damaging viewpoint, but it is an opportunity for those who are called to it to use an experience and to use it to encourage others to love better. Mm. So that's, that's where I've landed um, at the moment. Again, I'm, I'm a changeable human being, so experience will change. Who knows? I might settle down and realize that I actually want health insurance and thereby don't want to be an actor. And I actually want to have teeth past the age of 30. And so I take a job that has dental insurance, i.e. not an acting job. Maybe I get married and I'm about to have a kid and realize, ah, frick, childbirth is expensive. I need a job that's not acting to pay for that. <laughs> and then decide to continue not acting. Like there's, there's an infinity of ways in which my life could change. Um, but at the moment, the thing that I'm called to is, is this center point between, mm. between the world and the church, between Christ and the people that he loves, uh, between these two parts of myself. Because to bring it back to an earlier example, when the religious atom, the religious proclivity within myself is set at odds with my sexual desires or my sexual uh, sexuality. Mm. My goal is to not end that battle. Mm. My goal is to not walk out of that with one side victory. My goal is to keep that conflict going as long as I can, doing my best to unify what parts that I can as time goes on. So it becomes a smaller battle over time, mm. but to never declare To never declare that God doesn't approach me as I am, 
to declare that he approaches everyone in the same way, which is the way that much of religion is taught. Mm -hmm. um, to pretend that I am more religious than I am. Mm -hmm. To be arrogant in that manner. To never go in that direction, nor to go in the direction of throwing up what I believe to be true. And to keep that difference, that dissonance, alive in myself so that I can better understand the people around me mm. um, and better love them. I'm going to do a terrible job of it because I do a terrible job of loving people in other ways too. A thousand different ways that I can love and care for the, the physical and emotional and spiritual well-being of people around me that I don't do. Let's just keep this a well-rounded... So let's just <laughs> keep that cycle going and, and say, if I'm going to fail at something, I'm going to fail at everything. If I don't love these people, I'm going to not love everyone equally. If I'm going to have the opportunity to love everyone and not do it, then I want that for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think I want to touch on something. And um, so I, I'm, you know, very interested in so much of what you're saying and, and relate to a lot of it. I also do notice your habit of going general. Yes, because general and generality means, means it's philosophically acceptable. Mm. It means I don't have to face specific things about myself. Mm -hmm. Specific things like what it means to go to church after I've masturbated. Mm -hmm. Things like what it means to... to want to wear a dress to a party and be worried about who might see me. Mm things like how I'm very good at doing contour makeup because I'm an actor, but also like the look of makeup on women and think, man, I wish that could be my face. And also then realize if I was good enough at makeup, I could, but also I really hate applying makeup <laughs> because it means having a very complicated emotional experience every time I walk by the women's underwear section in any store ever, mm. which is a deeply unsettling experience that I've had every time I've passed by a women's underwear store in any store in my life. Like, I, I remember being seven and feeling very weird walking by racks of bras. Mm. And I remember... The, the, the sort of ups and downs of experiencing it as confusion or as arousal or as interest. Mm. And it varies based on the day. Because generality means that I don't have to bring up those things. And it also means that I don't have to think about things that I'm not going to have answers for. Mm. Because at the end of the day, I'm not going to have answers for them. Um, when which epistle it is. Paul talks about having a thorn in the flesh, which he has prayed mm -hmm. multiple times to be taken away. Um, when I was first being raised, I was, 
I remember being taught that that was likely a physical ailment that he had. Mm-hmm. Gout, maybe. Uh, leprosy. Diabetes, although that wasn't actually really known at that point. It only became, I mean, it was mentioned by, like, some griefs. Anyway, um, that it was a physical ailment, that it was physically an illness with him, mm-hmm. a thorn in the flesh. Um, and recently, I have heard and read that it is also more than likely that it was a sin, some addiction or, or sin that he struggled very specifically with. Mm-hmm. I find the latter much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, I say, as an able-bodied person who doesn't have severe disabilities to deal with. And so my lived experience is much closer to the latter. Mm-hmm. Someone who has a disability may find the former concept of it being a physical uh, illness more similar to their lived experience and more attractive. So mm-hmm. for me, I find it a much more interesting and theologically engaging idea that the Apostle Paul was struggling with a sin issue, some addiction, something that he could not shake or get rid of. Mm-hmm. Don't know what it was. Um, as someone who who has had addiction to pornography and has had uh, a lot of struggles with viewing people as uh, sexual objects, that sort of dehumanization that often comes out of a mm-hmm. porn addiction, um, that that is incredibly hopeful to me mm. because it means that not only does Christ's love mean something generally, but specifically it means that he can take me, a person who's horny way too much of the time, for both lust reasons and also sloth reasons, if you're curious about that, read some Thomas Aquinas and Desert Fathers because they talk about the interrelation of the two anyway. Mm. Um, That Christ can take me, a person who is horny all the time, and use me well. Mm. The, The fact that I am continually sinful in these very specific ways in these ways that are very physical, that are related to the the temple of the Holy Spirit, as Paul talks about, that even me, God can use. Mm -hmm. And the phrase God can use is is one that's been used a lot for to mean a whole bunch of things, and it's also very general. But what it means is that I am not beyond saving. What it means is that there's hope, it means that in the period right after masturbation, when at the very least a lot of people that I've talked to, certainly myself, I don't know if this is universal, feel a great deal of sudden and aggressive shame. Oh yeah, that's very familiar to me. That in that period, when you feel so completely disgusting and unlovable to anyone and everything, that not only... Was God the ultimate voyeur and watch you do it? Mm. But that he loves you nonetheless unchanged by that fact. Redemption 
means healing on the whole person. It, it means that all of the things in me are made well and made right and put in order. Because this isn't, healing from sin isn't healing from, say, a gunshot wound, where all the damage is due to an external thing being shoved rather forcibly and quickly into portions of your anatomy. It's more like an illness. It is a, theoretically even, a cancer. Mm. It is a, a, a corruption of the good. And it is a, a mistiming and misdirection of the good. And the fact that God could use Paul, the fact that God can use me, the fact that God sacrificed himself for us, fully aware of all of the gross, nasty things that all of us were going to be into, of all of the really, really messed up kinks that people were going to develop and already had developed, because let's be honest, it was Rome, so like every kink that could be kinked was kinking. Uh, <laughs> probably all at once in the Emperor's Palace. Even though he was intimately aware of every aspect of that, that he still chose to die for us, means that healing, means that redemption is able to deal with that fact. Mm. And because sin isn't an external entity to myself, because it is a misgrowth within myself, that means that healing isn't going to carve off chunks of who I am as a person. Mm. I can choose to sacrifice things. I can choose to say no to things. I can choose to fast or to give up various things in my life. But God doesn't demand it. God demands that I take all of the things and do my best to heal them and mm. to make them right before him. Mm. And so that means that... The fact that I'm horny all the time, yes, that's a mistiming of things and probably a dial that got turned up too high or that I've encouraged to turn up too high or what have you. It means that that's not a part of myself that I need to flagellate away or cut off. It means that mm. that is a portion of who I am as a human. Mm. Physically, it's a portion of who I am as a human. Mm -hmm. And that there is a good place for it. There's a good outpouring for everything that makes me a human, for everything that makes me me. There is a right place in the shattered puzzle of tiny mm. little pieces for it. And it is, that gives me hope because that's an achievable goal and because that's something that I crave mm. when I'm horny, that I think most of us crave when we're horny is to experience sexuality in a way without guilt or without, in a way when it's right. Mm. We want it where we don't feel shame afterwards. We want it where we feel delight, where we feel safe, where we feel protected, where we feel secure, where we feel relationally poured into, where we feel that sex is a form mm. of flourishing. And I can tell you that for me, masturbation is not that in any way, shape, or form, yet I keep on doing it. And so redemption means 
that that hope, that desire I have every time I get horny to experience sexuality in that good way is a hope that will be fulfilled either in this world, if I were to get married and get to have consenting sex with a spouse who is super hot, yay, woo, and also one who found me super hot, that would be neat. Um, but also the fulfillment of the core things that are attractive to me about sexuality, which are like emotional intimacy, like that that's the thing that, that, that enraptures me most conceptually about getting married, is getting to have sex with someone, getting to practice this form of intimacy with someone over a long period of time and get to know them better over a long period of time. To get to know not only them as their personality, their tics, their interests, their likes, but also to get to know their body, mm -hmm. to get to know the things that it does, the reactions that it has, that they are in control of and the ones that they're not. The, the deepening intimacy and relationship that is involved in that is something that is unspeakably attractive to me mm. and unspeakably desirable to me. And it's mm. that emotional fulfillment mm. that awaits in, in heaven, in becoming Christ-like and, and joining with the congregation of other people who have tried to become Christ-like and who are praising him. That fulfillment, um, that redemption of this thing that was not, he did not demand that I cut off, that he made me with, and it said, okay, here's going to use a D and D, uh, <laughs> description here, metaphor. Here's your character sheet, Sam. Here's the campaign. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. Here's a rule book. And as anyone who's played D and D can tell you the rules, there's a whole lot of reading into them that has to happen. Cause there's a whole lot of weird shit that isn't covered by the rule book. And you have to make inferences and you have to make extensions and you have to guess what's implied and what's not. And sometimes you just go by what intuitively feels right and you realize that it was right or wrong in hindsight. Mm -hmm. Here's the rule book. Now go for it. Here's the campaign. The end goal of the campaign is for you to love me, to receive my love, and to love other people. Go for it, little dude. And that redemption... That, and so then I look at my character sheet and realize that my character's plus three to charisma, but let's be honest here, minus one to strength and <laughs> probably minus one to uh, wisdom as well. That these stats can be used to care for others well. Mm -hmm. That all of this, I'm not going to say it, it's for a reason implying that God is behind every atrocity and every wonder in the world. Mm. But that, because that's a different description or different discussion. Um, but that means that all of it can be healed cohesively. Mm. That there won't be a part left out. Mm. And that all of it can be used in the right time to care for myself and others well. Yeah, I have a couple things that I've sort of mm -hmm. pulled out. One was when you were talking about sexuality and the sort of reaching out for something. And mm -hmm. what I think of 
being someone who's thought about this a lot is the, it's the desire for connection either with another person or with yourself. Mm. Uh, in fact, I, I think I just realized that last part while you were talking um, because so often, um, especially me as, as someone who's, you know, I experience addiction in this world. So often it is um, been something that has specifically um, divorcing myself or, 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 or sort mm. of a disconnection. Um, Turning off parts of yourself so you can do the thing. Yes. Um, either, you know, with my partner or with myself. Yeah. Um, with myself the most. Um, Agreement, yeah. And... Yeah, I, I'm just thinking like the, the whole time we've been talking, there's been, you brought it up again, like the idea of shattering, the idea of um, we have all of these different parts and they're not working so well together. We have the sexuality, but we're not connected. <laughs> and we feel shame afterwards and we feel disconnection. We feel isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, your your language about when you were talking about, you know, this is, this is what Christianity calls to of, of taking care of people in all of these different ways. And I just heard all of those parts coming back mm-hmm. together. And also the, forgive me if I'm totally wrong about this one. Uh, I'm not Orthodox, so I might be wrong, but um, I believe it's an Orthodox idea as you said, where, where sin is a disease and there there's healing as a part of it, that it is this healing aspect. It's definitely a, an orthodox topic. Topic. Of, of, of treating, treating redemption as healing and sin as illness and sickness, rather than as in like a court metaphor. Mm-hmm. You know, crime and punishment sort of feel more as illness and healing. Yeah, I... Over the years, I've become more and more interested in that. And I just hear that all over where you're talking generally or specifically. That's something that you seem to value and um, hope for, yearn for, I think is the right word. Yearn is an excellent word for that. Um, I don't. I'm very fortunate in that I haven't experienced many addictions in my life. I've experienced a couple. Mm. Uh, and I know from experience that my mind, that I'm a very addictive person to things that are culturally acceptable and thereby aren't treated as addictions. Mm. Um, obsessive is perhaps a better word in that regard, mm. but, um, I am curious about the experience of humanity in light as being an addict, as being someone who does something that they know is not ideal, Mm. but still does it, Mm. Um, rather than someone viewing their life as 
committing crime, if you will, like because mm. so much of, of, of Protestantism and even some of Catholic theology, I think, is this very, you know, God is the judge and you mm. are the sinner and Christ comes out and says, no, no, I, my blood covers up his sin. So he's no longer on the dock. Mm-hmm. All of this very courtroom metaphor. Um, the thing that I yearn for is, is being whole, is being healthy. Um, because I'm a person who sees, who sees the bad in myself, but also sees the potential for good and sees Mm. the potential for beauty within myself and sees all the ways that it struggles to come out. Mm. It struggles to be seen or to work well or to actually do the thing or be beautiful or whatever. Um, and so I, I, I crave healing, Mm. not reparations because um, mm. I don't view myself as a purely bad person who must be saved by Christ the ultimate defense eternity eternity um, eternity works there too <laughs> honestly yes uh, but as a person who is unwell in every aspect of my being mm. and craves wellness um, yeah I think that's a good ending point. I agree. I'm not promising anonymity to people because I can't promise that. This is not a let's change the vocal quality to make this work project. (laughs) I lie. So we first met outside this bar in (laughs) Brooklyn.